Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's um, episode of Sip and Scholar, a podcast where we uncork new knowledge. Today, I am joined by Dr. Molly Apple, who is an amazing professor, a really good friend, and the best happy hour companion. <laughs> We all have our skill sets. <laughs> <laughs> and your current faculty senate chair at oh, NSU. Yes. Help. <laughs> Help is here. Yeah. Cheers, friend. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you. Yay. Hi. So today we're sipping on some, what is this, a Malibu? I learned it as a Malibu con piña. Mm. It's a throwback to the first ever beverage I ordered legally at a bar when I was 18 Ooh. and living my later I learned it was called gap year oh. in Spain mm-hmm. working as an au pair um what I didn't yes, know that. No surprise. Way. yes. <laughs> uh, instead of going right to college mm-hmm. I uh, made a deal with my parents that if I accepted enrollment somewhere and deferred for a year I could go and have a different experience of learning I had wanted to kind of take a break from schooling for Mm -hmm. a little while and then yeah so I was 18 and it was a it sounds like really glamorous probably like oh I lived in Spain when I was 18 for so long Um, But it was really a year of like learning to be by myself a Mm -hmm. little bit and Mm -hmm. kind of like with my own thoughts and wanderings about the world but I did meet a couple of other au pairs who took me out to a bar yeah. which I had never legally been allowed to do here to in the U.S. <laughs> in the U.S. and so I had no idea what to order yeah and um the girl I was with was like oh you'll love this it's a Malibu Campina mm-hmm. and uh Ever since, it just makes me so nostalgic, yeah. and it's extremely drinkable. It is very drinkable, and once you're <laughs> drinking it, you can see why it's the drink for an 18-year-old. Yeah, yeah, 18-year-old, yeah. basic B white girl, like, <laughs> out there. I know, I remember, like, when I was, like, um, like a teen, the drink of choice was, like, a Smirnoff. Yeah. I can, I would not, no, do not give me a smart up. Or things that we subject ourselves to. Or I thought it was really cool to like go up to the bartender and be like, mm, I want to sex on the beach. <laughs> and you think you're like, I'm the most adult like, mm, ever. And they're me. like, uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. living my sex on the city fantasy. <laughs> no, no, like. No. That was later when I lived in New York. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay, well, whatever. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. No, well, listen. I am uh, a longtime listener, longtime fan mm. of, well, you certainly, and this Uh-oh. podcast especially. You're longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> currently working as an assistant professor of English, but you didn't, you, you never actually studied English. So That's can you correct. tell us about that journey and how that was like? Yeah, it's really funny to me to have ended up with, I think what for many of my humanities grad school colleagues would say mm-hmm. is like the lottery win, right? Yeah. A tenure track job mm-hmm. in an English 
program, et cetera. And it's just strange to me because I, yeah, I think I told you, I'm like, I never actually majored in English at any yeah. point in my career. And what were your majors in? What were, oh, well, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I actually, well, it's funny. So I mentioned that I took a gap year between high school and going to college where I, I lived and worked in first on the southern coast of Spain. Yeah. And then I moved to Madrid and um, just kind of, excuse me, see, I'm already like drinking the drink. Here we go. <laughs> I moved to Madrid um, and worked there and uh, kind of got really interested in language and different even forms of English and Spanish because I worked in a very Spanish mm-hmm. family with like the capital S mm-hmm. and um but worked around because you know it's a well it's an o- being an au pair for listeners who may not be familiar means yeah. you are essentially a a full-time nanny mm-hmm. for your kids. And so it usually comes with a certain level of wealth to have that. Um, I think often in the United States, American, U.S. American families will Mm -hmm. bring their French, you know, teenager over to to whatever, spend time with their kids and they learn another language. And so I was doing that with English. Um, But I also, you know, there was, I remember an Ecuadorian a woman who would come and cook for the family and we would, we would chat during the off yeah. Times and and whenever I heard her call her, um, call her family back in Ecuador, she would use usted with her kids, mm-hmm. which is the formal for listeners if they're not familiar with Spanish. It's the yeah. formal you terminology, usually something that you use at a distance. And mm-hmm. getting to kind of ask her about what that usage meant to her for how she formed a relationship with mm-hmm. her kids versus. Um, other people around in the household really just kind of got me interested in mm-hmm. in language and storytelling kind of across nations and mm-hmm. and uh, not sort of stuck in one particular like English or Spanish yeah, um, yeah. so in <laughs> when I got to college I tried a multitude of majors I went to Skidmore College which is a a small private liberal arts in mm-hmm. upstate New York and had about 2,000 students. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, slack, I think, <laughs> is the, <laughs> the term for it. And, um, you know, I, I looked into majoring in Spanish, or I think I took, like, one or two English classes, mm-hmm. but I was also interested in anthropology and psychology. And mm-hmm. Skidmore had a program where you could design your own major. Oh, and you that's had awesome. to, yeah, it was it was an interesting experience. You had to, um, like, fully propose a program just like any other professor would. Oh, so it wow. had to go in front of the curriculum committee, and it had to be approved as a sort of one-off degree, essentially. Mm-hmm. And and so the major I made up was in mythology and folklore. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> I love. <laughs> tell me more yeah so, yeah so th- um, this is a very long-winded way and and you know you can tell I'm an English professor because everything I do and say is long-winded <laughs> um <laughs> but um but so what that what that allowed me to do I think I was really interested in story and language in how it worked to kind of often when people talk about that's a myth yeah it means it's something that's untrue yeah. or it's false 
when really historically and culturally over time, myths are the things that organize our thinking about each other and about cultures. Mm. They're kind of the cultural archive in some way. That's true. Like the myth of La Llorona? Like that, La Llorona that, is right? a great example. Yeah. Um, any kind of you know, mythology, we, you know, I think when I was a kid and growing up, I loved reading, you know, the Greek pantheon mm -hmm. and you had the different sort of trans-Mesoamerican pantheon of, mm -hmm. of gods and, and myths, but they were, they're, they sort of function in that, um, yes, like La Llorona still does today, mm -hmm. I think in, in Southwestern and Chicano and Mexican, yeah. uh, American cultures, but But so that's what got me interested in that. Um, mm -hmm. And then like way late in my career, I learned there was a field called comparative literature that <laughs> I was yeah. like, oh, that's what I want to do. <laughs> But then I um, became a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I was a teacher for four years in New York City mm -hmm. in Washington Heights in the Bronx. Okay. And my licensure was for English as a second language, which mm -hmm. I think now it's not even used that terminology now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I worked with English language learners from mm -hmm. all over the world mm -hmm. um, and never really lost my interest in that. But I think learned, I think my time with those students and working in those schools really shaped how I think about what, what role different sort of myths or organizing ideas, organizing mm -hmm. fictions have in our lives yeah. um, and what role they play in, in how we approach education mm -hmm. as teachers and as learners. And so um, I didn't, it's, I, I had a hard time making that decision to leave my students and my colleagues, but yeah. I did want to see what, it, if someone would let me in yeah. to grad school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, And so comparative literature, I, I was trained as a uh, inter-Americanist, is what the mm -hmm. term is, which means you're looking at, at literatures and histories across the American region. Okay. So, so that includes like the North, South, Central, okay. South okay. America. Yeah, okay. Um, sometimes we throw El Caribe in there sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> we leave it to be its own thing. <laughs> um, But, you know, with the investment being in, in being able to look at central questions or themes or concepts across mm -hmm. their exchange, across their transnational histories. And yeah. so, so I ended up applying for jobs that were um, in English departments and Spanish departments, um, different versions of that. And landing at Nevada State in some ways was like the perfect um, amalgamation of all the mollies that came yeah. before <laughs> you have academic molly you have teacher molly yeah yes you have au pair molly, au pair molly. <laughs> <laughs> let's it. not forget her thank you au pair molly <laughs> that's awesome okay so that's kind of and it's interesting to land in an english and the program yeah program was it part of an english department no it was oh. its own school its own program oh, and so what we would do, so mm -hmm. my grad colleagues mm -hmm. were people from all over the world i had i was in seminars with students who were investigating you know medieval theater in yeah. uh you know china and japan or you know photography and film in romania and brazil mm -hmm. and so but what brought us together were the kind of common 
methods and sort of approaches to looking at concepts and always that sort of translingual yeah um locus Mm -hmm. and so yeah but but sometimes you know we you would you would wander off and be like I'm going to take a seminar in the English department here or like in the Spanish department over here Mm -hmm. um but yeah it was at Penn State and so it's its own it's its own field um which always I feel like a lot of these fields have their own like identity crisis built in (laughs) (laughs) but yeah oh okay okay so yeah yeah, that's how I and and like being in an English department luckily I did have some experience with teaching writing and composition while Mm -hmm. I was in graduate school plus from being a teacher Mm -hmm. um and I think that's probably what really helped me yeah. <laughs> get this job because no, we're invested I, in that. And yeah. I think it's so important, too, that you have that K-12 experience because we teach so many students um, in the English department who do want to become secondary English teachers, right? And you're the to-go person for that because you My have that experience. Thing to teach, yeah. yeah. And, and I think a lot still today about what's my role in like obviously helping to prepare our teachers but I think in some ways changing how we think about who are the practitioners and intellectuals Mm -hmm. of the work that we do I think and I've been um talking about this with the you just you just put together a wonderful um PD day through the school of education that I think brought a lot of different folks from different corners of education in Clark Mm -hmm. County together in a Mm -hmm. really productive way and I think so much more often we need to be checking ourselves in the academia side on are we talking about teachers Mm -hmm. without teachers are we engaging with teachers knowledge and pedagogical expertise Mm -hmm. in the same way or are we looking at them like we have all of the expertise that needs to hierarchically yeah. come down upon yeah. them. Yeah. And so I, I think about that a lot in how I, I prepare, I, I get to help prepare, mm-hmm. you know, our, our Clark County teachers. I like to fantasize that I have like a dual appointment in the school of ed <laughs> and school of you liberal do. arts. <laughs> you kind of do though. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, so I know that one of the areas that you um, study and that you also teach about is testimonio. Yeah. Right. So what are what is testimonio first of all, right? And what are some ways that you have approached in your research, testimonio, and in your teaching as well? Such a good question asker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, testimonio is something I came across first while I was trying to put together a, a sort of capstone research project for my mythology and folklore mm-hmm. major. Mm-hmm. I had um, two wonderful educators who have since moved on from Skidmore into other lofty positions or <laughs> whatever, um, who introduced me to two texts that continued to be, I think, pivotal to my my thinking and my, uh, my teaching. And one is, um, me llamo Rigoberta Menchu, I, mm-hmm. which is known as one of the kind of pivotal uh, testimonios, and I'll get, I'll get to that, sorry, <laughs> the, the, the roundabout response, um, as well as uh, Gloria Ansaldúa's Borderlands, La Frontera. And, and so I, I started to, because I was interested in, in how authors who engage with different sort of 
genres of storytelling we could say we have like a novel right is one sort of genre and we kind of know what to expect and how to position ourselves as readers Mm -hmm. when we read a novel yeah and there's some interesting history there that I got to to learn more about in my dissertation research around um literature and human rights Mm -hmm. that talks about how the novel trains us to think about ourselves and who counts as a person Mm -hmm. in particular ways and what's so compelling about testimonio which is formally kind of recognized as a as a genre that grew out of the latin american um social movements and revolutionary actions Mm -hmm. from really like the 1960s through onward i think the big the big sort of productive period of that was around the 1960s 70s and 80s um in a parallel way that people often know from Latin American literature, they think about Gabriel García Márquez yeah. or uh, Borges, you mm-hmm. know, these kind of like magical realism yeah. sort of ways, which which became, you know, a global way of, of recognizing um, non-Western storytelling, we could yeah. say. But the testimonio purposefully breaks all of these rules Mm -hmm. it breaks and ruptures all of the expectations we have around when I read a novel you know do I see myself in the protagonist yeah and it's sort of you know historically you can look back to even the era of the enlightenment when people started writing things like the declaration of the rights of man and and citizen in France or the Declaration of Independence, all of these kind of big Enlightenment texts that were like, this is what it means to be a person. Yeah. And around that same time, you had novels like Robinson Crusoe starting to come out um, that were also shaping the populace's imagination for how, how do we know what a person is? How do we mm-hmm. conceptualize our imagination for that? And Testimonio is like specifically rupturing all of the expectations around who who counts as a recognized human mm-hmm. in different cultural environments, state histories. And so one example, I Rigoberto Menchu, written by um, she she eventually Guatemalan Mayan woman who eventually got the Nobel Peace Prize and all of mm-hmm. these things. And when she was in her early 20s, went into exile from the, the Guatemalan Civil War, which was mm-hmm. enacted sort of this indigenous genocide. Um, and she went to Paris and told her story. She says, my story is the story of all of my people um, to a French anthropologist who then framed it into a narrative and published it around the first world, mm-hmm. right? The sort of the, the global north, as, as people say, where, where audiences are very distanced from the subject matter and the people involved. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, the, the speaker, Rigoberta, has that kind of, is this sort of, um, right, speaker for all of her, all of her people, as she says, for a particular experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, what she's doing is kind of, and what the simonios are meant to do is to disrupt the very norms of recognition and discourses that talk about it, that, um, 
make experience invisible in the first place or make violence like genocide against the indigenous Mm -hmm. invisible in the first place so it's a really like troublemaking kind of story yeah that makes people uncomfortable and it's always is it always based on like your real life experience or is there a testimonial that's like fiction total fiction i think traditionally in the genre it is it's based in in the speaker's experience yeah and sometimes the speaker's experience is fluid Mm -hmm. between her own sort of historical experience Mm -hmm. or that of her neighbors Mm -hmm. that of her cousins that of her community okay and so it's kind of operating too on on a more in in western ways of thinking about what's truth and what's not Mm -hmm. it's operating on a totally different kind of epistemology we could say a sort of way of thinking about personhood and knowing Mm -hmm. that is um is purposefully in many ways against the like what I would call like a juridical lens a legal lens of like is this true or not yeah and often when I when I teach right when Mm -hmm. you teach a a book about whatever Mm -hmm. students I find will come and want to say well this author is biased Mm-hmm. this author has this bias or not and sort of bringing that lens of like my job as a reader is to evaluate thank you Stephen Colbert the truthiness <laughs> <laughs> of something when mm-hmm. Testimonio is asking you to do something very different mm-hmm. which is to sit to learn to sit with and listen and to Mm -hmm. sit in discomfort, to sit in things that are contradictory. Mm -hmm. And I guess I put Gloria Ansaldúa with that because over the years since I've come to know her, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a longstanding relationship, (laughs) I think she very much is teaching the same thing. Mm-hmm. Did that answer your question? It did, it did. And it kind of made me think too that testimonial is giving um, a voice to people who normally don't have a voice. If- Absolutely. And I right? should mention that, you know, historically, testimonio has sort of been codified in academia mm-hmm. through like Latin American studies scholars who yeah. are like white, you know, ivory tower, literary this. But but I think that particularly Chicana feminist mm-hmm. and Latina feminist lines of scholarship and particularly within the sphere of education and yeah. higher education have really adopted a new, I mean, it's not new, like from many decades, but have, have really, I think, demonstrated testimonio as both practice mm. and object of study we could mm-hmm. say in a in a way that i i would like to see kind of the you know literary studies and latin american studies scholars engage with a lot more mm-hmm. um i think sometimes these are parallel uh lines of inquiry that could that could do yeah so i just cut myself off Sorry. <laughs> No, no, I mean, I find this very, very super interesting because when I was in my PhD program, um, I 
learned about Gloria and Saldua, but I didn't, like, I think I learned, I maybe read, like, a couple chapters, yeah. but it wasn't, Was like, it How to Tame a Wild Tongue? Yeah. That's yeah. usually the- I love, and I loved it. <laughs> well, I mean, I yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, and I think yeah. that that's often the most um, yeah. canonized of yeah. her, of her pieces, it and is, rightfully yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. And Borderlands, too. I remember there's one of, one of her readings that talks about, um, talks about like the whole thing about about language and feeling like she doesn't speak like the right variety of language and yes. talking about um, how language fluctuates and how as a Chicana, you know, no soy de aquí ni soy de allá. I'm not from here, not from there, right? Like I, and that resonates with so many people, right? Okay. Um, and I used part of her her writing um, with my own um, undergrads and teacher preparation because it kind of gives you... Bilingual education, yeah. I mean... And it gives you, like, a really good um, view. I think it gives people who might not understand what it's like to be bilingual and what it's like to be judged by the way that you speak both languages, like a, a window into how we think about language and how we feel about language. So I definitely used part of her work, but, I mean... Gloria Sardua's work is amazing. It's really large. And to really get to it, it's, <laughs> you know, like you have that expertise for sure. And um, so, yeah, so the question that I have for you talking about Gloria Sardua, um, since you focus on her work, so for our listeners, could you please give us a description of her body of work and how that resonates in your field as an English professor? <sighs> I'm going to try to do that without just being like mega fangirl here <laughs> the whole time. Um, Gloria Ansaldua, I guess somewhat of a long story short, uh, is recognized now and rightfully so as a, a Chicana, queer, lesbian, sometimes now later on in her work she identified more as patlache, which is a mm-hmm. Nahuatl term for... Mm-hmm. Queer femme woman, like but leche. Is it free spirit? No, it's not the same thing. Oh, like two spirit. I don't. Two spirit. I don't think it no. may be, okay. That may be akin. I actually, I should, I should look more into that um, linguistic history. But I think it, it may be akin to that mm-hmm. within um, North American okay. uh, indigenous terminology. But it comes from the Mexica indigenous, like mm-hmm. of that. But leche is as a as a queer woman, and and she. Um, what grew up on the uh on the border of of texas grew up in Mm -hmm. brownsville um and was an educator there Mm -hmm. for a long time went to pan american college which is now uh university of texas rio grande Grande. yeah (laughs) (laughs) we we had a wonderful speaker at the at the um event you you held the other day who, who spoke to that and um she went on to uh, write very much out of her own experience, out of her own experience, positionality from those places. Positionality now is a term that I think that, mm-hmm. that we can apply to that. But she was doing it before all of yeah. all of this was going on. Yeah. And I think she completely trailblazed so many ways of, of really fundamentally, you know, there's there's the concept of the borderlands, certainly. Mm-hmm. There's the concept of Nepantla, mm-hmm. which comes from, again, Nahuatl terminology, but she really kind of theorized and offered this theory of being in between. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite lines of hers from the borderlands 
uh, first chapter or preface is, I think, this this is my home, this thin edge of barbed wire, mm-hmm. she writes. But in, in, in both loving and painful terms. Yeah. And I think holding those contradictions that both mm-hmm. tear us apart but make us who we are is precisely the theory that she, I think, introduced into into the world and and is why her work shows up in so many wide varieties of places one of the things i've i've gotten thank you nevada state i've gotten to teach um a seminar on her work and so mm-hmm. we we read it's just we're reading one author really <laughs> but from borderlands through to a collection of her early and, and late work to her posthumously published mm-hmm. dissertation, um, mm-hmm. Light in the Dark, Luz en lo Oscuro. Um, and she, um, I have my students kind of start by looking up a key word of interest to them. Maybe it's education, maybe it's mental health, maybe it's spirituality. Mm-hmm go onto the library website and look up Gloria Anzaldúa and that keyword and see what they discover. And they always discover so many things because yeah. she impacted queer theory. She impacted education. She impacted rhetoric and writing studies. Mm-hmm. She impacted literary studies. She mm-hmm. impacted... Not, not, not next studies. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, right, uh, all let alone... The <laughs> <laughs> all the things. Also yeah. all of that foundational yeah. to yeah. Latine, Latinequis, Chicana mm-hmm. studies... Um, and I think part of what is so compelling that, that I've, I try to continue to think through is, is she did this as a writer, but lived it in how she built coalitions mm-hmm. among other writers, among other women of color, particularly among other queer, femme, trans, and the different words that, you know, we have for that now, again, that in when she lived in San Francisco in the 1980s had a lot of different mm-hmm. um, attachments to it. But, but she, she did so much. She rooted her practice of, of writing as a practice of thinking and, and living. It's sort of she um, refused binaries mm-hmm. is really what... Yeah, she insistently introduces and and not you know so distinct from so much other academic theory that mm-hmm. we see. She's like, I'm gonna not only refuse the terms that I'm supposed to be inheriting. Mm-hmm. Right? I think one of the one of the stories is she went and I should I should remember this. She went either to a comparative literature department. I think it might have been might have been at UT Austin. Um, don't at me if I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get in the comments. <laughs> um, <laughs> but she was like, I want to study Chicana, Chicano mm-hmm. literature for my dissertation. They were like, that's not a real field. Yeah. And she, I know it is. I mean, and I know now, like, can yeah. you, it's, it's wonderful to say it's hard to imagine that, mm-hmm. but it's because of folks like her and, yeah. and obviously like her yeah. comadres who were, who were refusing the refusals. Mm-hmm. And I think she teaches that across across her work. And so she worked in this, you know, Borderlands is this like, what is it? Is it is it history? Is it personal narrative? Is it poetry? Mm-hmm. It's all of those things. Yeah. Is it theory? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, again, this refusal of easy, neat mm-hmm. genres. Um, and before that was 
a collection called This Bridge Called My Back, yeah. Radical, yeah. radical Writings of Women of Color. Mm-hmm. She collaborated with Jedi Mohraga, mm-hmm. Audrey Lord, Tony Cade Bambara, other, you know, just like luminaries yeah. of, of literature and certainly of uh, women of color, mm-hmm. writers and activists at the time. And so that, that was the first publication she actually had and then went on to do Borderlands. And then she went on, she wrote children's books. She, she did, she thought a lot through her artwork. Mm-hmm. It's actually a tattoo I want to get. Oh, really? Saving up the money. <laughs> <laughs> that has her drawing. It's a beautiful drawing of a, maybe I'll, I'll send you a, a picture of it. You can like put it in the, mm-hmm. I don't even know. No, I mean, something. Yeah, I would love to see it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's called the, she writes geography of self and it's this woman you can see is kind of just has a, a, um, a naked body, but she's lying down and you see she's drawn these like rivers and, and, and mountain cliffs kind mm-hmm. of across her body in these, you know, are they scars? Are they wrinkles? Are they rivers? Yeah. It's, it's uh, all of that. And I think that was one mode of thinking she really mm-hmm. engaged in, which is, subverts again totally like what's the standard academic way of mm-hmm. writing and thinking about these things so sorry you should cut me off because no, I'm just gonna I... keep rambling about how much <laughs> no, no, I, I love it. her yeah um, no I like that a lot and I think um, when you were talking about borderlands right it really makes me think about um it really, I think it really resonates not only because of the topics, well, because of the topics discussed, but also because so many um, spaces share that border and those and similar dynamics or very dissimilar dynamics. So, for example, when I was a Fulbright scholar in Uruguay, oh I God, did, yeah. yeah, I did some work in the border of Uruguay and Brazil. And just looking at Portuñón, seeing the dynamics of both languages, Portuguese and... Portuñón! Yes! I was like, I had never heard of Portuñón until I got there. And I was like, and to sit in a classroom where a teacher was teaching in Portuñón, I was like, yeah. this is so interesting, right? And then we also have other invisible borders, like the one from Puerto Rico and the U.S., right that you kind of unpack and I think Gloria Sardua gave us a framework that really helps us unpack those intricacies of every border right even if it's different from the U.S. and Mexico border which I would argue might be one of the more um, in the Americas violent borders that we have right um compared to other places pretty Um, pretty strong argument there yeah yeah yeah. so though i i mean i think to your point the sort of legacy the colonial legacy Mm -hmm. of puerto rico and the mainland united states i think is equally has has its is steeped in in a violence there that yeah that is as not as tangibly visible exactly right but like you yes. know, we don't have a physical border we don't have these what is the new thing that they put on the rivers like these balls of spikes oh. on the river like we don't have that right but there's there's a clear border um that's an invisible border and that... i think this is what i find so important and compelling about testimonio mm-hmm. and testimonio is a mode of storytelling yeah because if you're living in a world where you have a framework of who of what human beings are mm-hmm. and look like that enables you to leave spike balls yeah. in you know the Rio Grande mm-hmm. uh, 
and have that operate in a way that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and it's justifiable. I mean, it's right. So, so like, can, what are yeah. the discursive and like rhetorical frameworks that mm-hmm. that make that kind of imagination possible? Mm-hmm. And I think testimonial and work like Gloria Ansaldúa's, um, you know, how she engages in Borderlands mm-hmm. thinking um, yeah. is is essential in an era when that is possible and seems mm-hmm. to just be more and more yeah. possible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Super true. So <laughs> super true. <laughs> super. Yay! Yay! <laughs> um, I am noticing a stark difference in the drinking level, but you know, just pointing it out. <gasps> well, <laughs> sure. you should. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Time for you to, to monologue back at me for a little while. <laughs> oh, God. That's funny. Um, okay. So. You, uh, one of the questions that I have for you, it's because I, um, I think Gloria and Sandua's work really makes you position yourself as who you are. And since you are a white educator, what are some <gasps> considerations? No, <I'm> just kidding. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> Spoiler to the listeners. <laughs> so when you're um, approaching Sandua's work as a white educator, what are some considerations that you take in mind? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. It's something I've thought about. Mm-hmm. I think since I, you know, first was living in Spain through working uh, as a white teacher in the Bronx and Washington Heights Mm -hmm. through to to now. And and it's funny, I was, like I said, fangirling, listening to your other episodes, (laughs) not to get meta here and refer to other episodes of your podcast, but I really... I loved hearing the way that um, Dr. Erika Abad was Mm -hmm. talking about otherness and insiderness and outsiderness in terms yeah. of the framework of participatory action mm-hmm. research was which is a fundamentally decolonial yeah um, mode of inquiry and I think about that I think one of the one of the best <laughs> lessons I ever got from we could say uh, like white allyship which is which is <laughs> fraught <laughs> and and always in process um, was to recognize that like there isn't a moment when I don't need to wake up in the morning or make a choice when I go and teach or interact with a colleague or a student that I don't need to choose anti-racism or to choose Mm -hmm. to go against the grain of which, you know, I grow up in, right? And and Dr. Marshall spoke about, you know, structural inequities, but this is how, you know, how you're trained in that. And so I think I precisely that have learned so much, I think through Ansaldua's insistent selfhood, mm-hmm. insistently positioning herself in a in a, with radical honesty in relation to her world. I take that model in how I need to be approaching her work. And so when I when I teach it and I teach I get to teach Gloria Ansaldua to all of our amazing, diverse in all the ways students, right? Mm-hmm. But predominantly who are students of color, mm-hmm. um, who don't who often I'm in a position where I'm teaching them about something that they don't necessarily know, mm-hmm. but I don't share their personal experience. And mm-hmm. so I think coming 
coming to this work from very outward that positionality is essential. I think mm -hmm. if I have to start from there yeah. and move forward from that. And I think actually something, a project I'm sort of working on um, in one of my like 50 projects <laughs> in my head that I'm working on, but um, is how Gloria Ansaldúa's work and I think Testimonio also as a genre teaches the skills of anti-racism that are, are essential to even being able to listen to a story about someone whose life you don't, life experience you don't share. Mm -hmm. And so I think taking from that, and I also think a lot about, especially when I am in racially, ethnically diverse spaces, and when there are other white students in the room, what does it mean for them to look at a person who, a white educator who engages with, you know, hopefully, always aspirationally, but yeah. how do I, you know, looking at work that is coming from Chicana feminism, from Gloria Ansaldúa, and, and speaking about how powerfully accessible and universally accessible it is without erasing the particularity of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that actually in itself provides a model for ways that folks who have historically benefited from the systemic inex inequities that cause violence against yeah. which Gloria Ansaldúa and Testimonio speakers mm -hmm. are writing what is a pathway for for that for owning that positionality without trying to kind of like fix it in in the sense of like and this kind of goes back to what i was saying around having like a a legalese reading of something versus a um holding contradictions mm -hmm. in your heart at the same time holding things that are intention, listening to something that is intention with your experience or other than your experience without mm -hmm. trying to resolve it necessarily yeah. in a way that is comfortable for you yeah. or without trying to just immediately mm -hmm. like, fix it without yeah. sitting in it, without yeah. sitting with the discomfort. Yeah. And I think that's what and makes... And acknowledging it, And right? acknowledging that's it. A lot, and that's a lot of times what happens with um just with conversations right yeah. you might be sharing an issue and i'm over here trying to fix it and you're getting mad right yeah <laughs> yeah thing. and i'm like i just wanted you to listen listen to me right acknowledge my feelings but it's yeah. true yeah. it's very much and i think that we and especially like it and that's what's hard right it, mm -hmm. me being like oh my god vanessa you're telling me a problem i'm gonna come up with a solution for you that's not mm -hmm. done out of it's done out of care yeah. right yeah but that's about my comfort mm -hmm. more than it is about what you are doing in that moment necessarily. Yeah. Like yeah. telling, recognizing telling as like a, a critical act that in and of itself is, has, mm -hmm. has value that we need to sit with. So mm -hmm. I think it's a very long-winded way to talk about what, what I think about as a white mm -hmm. educator of 
work who's, you know, and at the same time recognizing like, what does it mean if I, you know, I don't share her Chicana borderlands background. Mm -hmm. Reading Gloria Ansaldúa did, you know, help me think about the nuances of my own sexuality, Mm -hmm. the the ways that growing up as a uh, neurodivergent is now the term Mm -hmm. person, kind of, you know, being labeled from when I was in elementary school on as like a a disabled learner Mm -hmm. um, and feeling always like I'm the square peg in the round hole of educational institutions Mm -hmm. um, in, in verbalizing spaces and experiences that don't fit in binaries that I can enter into with, with genuine Mm -hmm. um, empathy. Yeah. And so, yeah. And yeah. And I think one of the most important things that we do as educators and that not a lot of educators do is being able to position yourself and think about that critically and how your body, how, how someone else's body of work or your own body of yeah. work is influenced by that background, right? And what you can draw from that. Just for example, I think um, for me, as you're talking, I'm thinking about my own experience too as a K-12 teacher in Puerto Rico. Yeah. And I was a high school English teacher. Oh, hey! And, um, in a public school. But I did my K-12 education in a, in a private Catholic school. So, okay. (laughs) Yes. So I definitely did not do any of these things. Like I was coming in into this school my first year. Um, You know, the first year is the hardest. So that's any educators out there. Like, yeah, there's just no, it's, it's, it's just going to be hard. And there's really no, I mean, you can have, you can be part of the best teacher prep program in the world and you're still going to have the hardest year of your life mm-hmm. your first year of teaching is, is I, yeah I, def- I definitely went in with a deficit perspective <laughs> yeah. from the get-go even though I was telling myself I wasn't but I'm walking into this school and I'm, it's even embarrassing now to think about it but I was walking into this school afraid because I was like I'm in a public school like these kids yeah. like they're in gangs they're in this like with yeah. all this deficit and um it wasn't until like these types of readings starts coming out that you are you start critically thinking about what your position, even though I'm a Latina, I'm Puerto Rican, yeah. I speak Spanish, I speak English, I have all those things in common with them. I did not share a similar socioeconomic background. And yeah. that alone was enough for me to just come in not, in the, not with the best foot forward. And yeah, yeah I mean, I, I talk about my, my years of, of teaching in K-12 as like, man, I think my students like learned in spite of me usually (laughs) (laughs) right and and thinking actually in in formulating my my research and my dissertation Mm -hmm. and moving forward I I thought a lot about the sort of purported benevolent white educator Mm -hmm. that you know I you you often and for me it's white but I think it's it's precisely that there's a lot of ways that Mm-hmm. multitudes of identities can can have sort of historically benefited from yeah. structures that uh, become invisible mm-hmm. to us, right? And and going into that, and and I think it really, you know, and I had sort of encountered Ansaldua and Pedagogy of the Oppressed, mm-hmm. another one that you need, y'all need it's to read. So good, yeah. Paulo Freire, Paulo Freire yeah. Um, <laughs> <Portoño>. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but I hadn't thought about it. But mm-hmm. then when I started to 
And without, you know, without over, at the risk of like over dramatizing what it was to like teach in the Bronx, you mm-hmm. know, I have vivid memories of like having an amazing class mm-hmm. with my students or like a really fucking frustrating yeah. class, you know, yeah. but in all of the ways that school is. And then, you know, going onto the subway and seeing, you know, one of my students was suddenly like pushed onto the wall mm. in handcuffs by the mm-hmm. police because they like jumped a turnstile. Mm, mm-hmm. And I'm like, I know this isn't happening at like Columbus Circle. Yeah. That's a like around Midtown, New York City, for those of you who, who don't, <laughs> who aren't like in love with New York City like yeah. I am. That's fine. <laughs> um, and I think I really gained the framework for understanding mm-hmm. a lot of that. Um, and what my role in that was and what what it also meant how how it impacted the way I think about um, what are the frameworks of thinking and, and ways of understanding like social and linguistic and cultural dynamics and especially in the rela- in relation to mm-hmm. education and the histories of teaching yeah. and learning that yeah. um, that shape how I think about it mm-hmm. now. And so I don't know where I was going with that. No, but no. It's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we were talking about it. <laughs> okay. So I have one more question Oh, my God. For you. Has it been 20 minutes or two oh, hours? Been- I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's been a while. Um, but it's, it's fine. Let's just hope the audio is good. I know. <laughs> okay. So the question I had, the last question I have for you Um we know that the humanities is unfortunately a field and that is constantly being contested. I mean, just look at some of the policies that are being passed in places like, you know, Florida, Texas, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and we hear in the news about underfunding and even passing legislations where topics of anti-racism are being banned. Um, why do we need to advocate for humanities and anti-racist pedagogies? For the listeners... I'm making a lot of faces right now. I know. You're like, I'm going to have to zoom on that face. It's funny. I think I mentioned earlier the sort of identity crisis that comparative literature I I learned about goes in. And I think that the humanities sort of goes through a similar one on a regular Mm. basis because the study of the humanities is not necessarily immediately consumable mm-hmm. or marketable. Mm-hmm. And so it's an investment. I mean, to use further language of capital, but um, it's funny. And, and one thing I, I teach my students when I'm teaching like intro to literary theory and criticism of the field of (laughs) English and literature. Um, But there's a wonderful book called The Teaching Archive that that looks at the history of of teaching, particularly in the field of of English, that Mm. articulates um, the difference between English, and I would put this at the humanities as well, is that, let's say, you know, in other kinds of disciplines, like psychology, for example, my amazing and brilliant psychology colleagues. <laughs> you learn how to do the thing you're studying to do it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. In English or in literature in the humanities, you're doing it 
mm-hmm. when you are in the classroom. Yeah. And that's a radically different act in the world, we mm-hmm. could say. And, you know, Audre Lorde famously said, poetry is not a luxury. Mm. And to me, what that means is literature fundamentally, the study of the humanities, narrative, storytelling, history, is precisely what shapes what we imagine is mm-hmm. possible for ourselves, for our futures. Mm-hmm. It is, a, it is a, one of the oldest technologies that we have. Sylvia Winter calls it, she's a Jamaican playwright and theorist, she calls it homo neurons. Mm-hmm. Um, we are biologically oriented to use storytelling as a, as a survival and evolutionary metric. Mm-hmm. And so the humanities get at precisely what, if we can't imagine otherwise, we will always be repeating mm-hmm. the same things and structures and ways of knowing and ways of communicating over and over. Yeah. And that's what, that is the intervention of, of the humanities of poetry, of something like testimonial, which is mm-hmm. gonna come out and I'm gonna break all your damn rules. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we now have so many more ways of, of thinking and stories that you know our students at Nevada State, who are first-generation students of color, can see themselves in. Because yeah. once somebody imagined otherwise and yeah. insisted on doing that, how do you put that in like... <laughs> Mm-hmm. A two a two second soundbite for why mm-hmm. we have to protect the humanities, and I mean that goes for the future, but also for understanding the past. I think yeah. all too often, you know, and what we see in Florida with the sort of essentially the outlaw of teaching Black history. Yeah, um, ideas have history, mm-hmm. language has history, yeah. and and you know, I think probably the most key example of that is the use of the n-word right Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. every single framework Mm -hmm. why we call something diversity equity and inclusion versus Mm anti-racism anti-white supremacy you know Mm -hmm. being pro-choice versus Mm pro-abortion right all of Mm -hmm. these things uh terms have history and and knowing context about something on knowing how to look for context about something is absolutely the way to um, help us not get lost in like the frenzy of mm-hmm. you know AI is gonna come and like <laughs> I know this is like <laughs> Vanessa's concern <laughs> oh my God. right like chat GPT is not gonna come and take over our thinking because it's only ever mimicking mm-hmm. the genre of sounding like a particular thing mm-hmm. but no, but like knowing how to know that mm-hmm. is what the humanities yeah. can give us. Yeah. Thanks and for I, asking. <laughs> and also, I think um, this is not going to sound great, but you can really tell when someone has never taken a humanities class. Well, really. And you can really it tell. Shows, it shows, babes. <laughs> it shows because one, th- one thing that I think humanities does really well is teach you how to critically think about issues. Well, and yeah. by that, I don't mean you have, we have to have the same... Um, thoughts or the same line of thought right no but we need to be to critically think about something it means you know how to do 
Um, good research, right? And by good research, it's not Google. You know, like how to and knowing if I come across something on Google, mm-hmm. do I know how to think? Like, well, what's the algorithm that got yeah. me this hit in the first place? Yeah. Like, why are only white male names coming up if I look mm-hmm. at you know, ChatGPT give me well, the, it'll just give you made up citations anyway. But like, yeah. <laughs> you know, knowing to be able to see mm-hmm. what has been made unseen and that's critical thinking I think to be able to see those questions and I think think creatively as well because that's the the thinking beyond Mm -hmm. that is actually what makes us Mm -hmm. it's at the heart of hope I'm gonna just say oh I love that that's so sweet Okay, so um, if our wonderful listeners want to reach you, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Well, I would have said Twitter once upon a time, but I'm in mourning. I'm in mourning (laughs) for Twitter, so maybe don't look me up there. But um, Threads? No, I I, I downloaded Threads for like a minute, and I was like, no, I I can't do more uh, social media. I know, I have to find it. I mean, so like on social media, I am like at Molly Apple. Like on Instagram? Molly underscore underscore Apple. Okay. And I do check my email, uh, but it is, you know, being faculty senate chair sometimes now means I have like 30 emails a day and I'm just to deal with that. I'm like, and no. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I I am on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. So Twitter or Instagram, whatever we're calling it. I know. Right. Or put the question on the comments and I'll make sure that she gets them and she'll reach out to you personally. I I will. (laughs) I'll make her. (laughs) Vanessa, thank you so, so much for having me big fan oh you're too thank sweet. you for doing this podcast no thank you oh, is like I, i've been learning so much and uh, and i think just does so much good for for just talking about what what you know, we do what do right? we do what yeah. do we do what does yeah. it look like for us to be doing yeah. our things and thinking stuff yeah and because of this um molly owes me a invitation to go play dungeons and dragons <sighs> That's for another episode. Mm, maybe we'll do a live stream of that. <gasps> <laughs> Sip and scholar and Dungeon Dragons with their time. Snakes. <laughs> <laughs> Swords and snakes. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Thank well, you cheers so much. Man.